This is Louisiana Considered. A very pleasant Thursday to you. I'm Carl Lengel. On today's show, Auctioner has identified workforce development and education as one of the major priorities for the Healthy State by 2030 initiative. We'll hear more about those programs, and we're going to hear about the complexities of violin repair. Up first... Our most recent update on the websites of WWNO and WRKF. Last night, multiple tornadoes left a path of destruction in Louisiana. Metro reporter Carly Berlin and the Gulf States newsroom's Shalina Chatlani have been out in the field all morning. We'll start with Carly, and I will advise you we do have some technical complexities with this. Uh, not just in the business of technical radio work, but in what has the storm has done and allowed us to get to. Carly, how you doing right now? Uh, Carly, are you on with us right now? All right, we'll try to get... Yes, yeah, go ahead. I don't know if you can hear me right now. This is... Patrick Madden. Oh, hey, Patrick. How are you doing? You are on the air with us right now. Yes. Um, we, again, uh, because of the storm and the tornadoes, the Internet service is very spotty out there. So we've been trying to get uh, Carly and Shalina, who have both been out there uh, from Araby and Harvey and Gretna. Um, and, and I can give you just – I can sort of fill you in on what they've been feeding to us at the station, uh, not as good as having them Live on the air right now, but I know um, it's just really hard right now with some of the connectivity issues. But yeah, both Carly and Shalina um, have been talking to residents this morning, and you know I think from Shalina who is speaking to residents in, in Araby, it's it's just I think people are shocked that in less in one year, two two tornadoes now have have struck this small community, um, which is which is just really, really mind-blowing when you think about it. And then, you know, also we've had, again, more than almost two dozen tornadoes across the state of Louisiana. Um, in Gretna and Harvey, uh, there's been a lot of damage. Um, Carly has been speaking to folks this morning and just some of the stories. And you'll, you can go to our website and we'll have uh, pictures uh, and, and some of the, the interviews with folks. But, you know, it, the storms hit so quickly. Uh, one of the, the, you know, just roofs were ripped off homes. And, uh, you know, one of the, the people that Carly spoke with, Michael Crooks, you know, described it like a train going through him. And he could actually see, because the roof was ripped off his home, he could see the tornado sort of jumping from house to house. So, you, you, you know, it, and, and the general sense from a lot of people is, you know, we're, we're you know, a lot of folks are used to preparing and breaking for hurricanes, and at least it gives you sort of time to prepare for it. You know it's a expect, but with these tornadoes that we, we're seeing more and more of, it's, 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 it almost is random about where it's going to hit, which home it's going to hit on each street. I know for a lot of us in the region last night, you know, when everyone was going into their sort of shelters or their bathrooms, you know, listening to the news, I know you were on the air sort of describing as this was all happening, you know, it just, it's very scary and of course for the people impacted by this who now have to start picking up the pieces it's, it's just devastating 
Absolutely. Patrick, thank you so much. We are getting bits and pieces of what you're saying to us because of our technical connections. We'll check one more time. If you can stand by just a second, we'll see if uh, we, we think we might have either Shalina or Carly with us. Can either one of you hear us right now? Hey, Carl, I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah, I think um, a lot of, echoing a lot of what Patrick has said out here in Airbnb this morning, I've been walking around and talking to a lot of residents. It feels like deja vu um, for myself as a reporter, um, obviously, and for the residents. I was here about nine months ago when the first hurricane hit, and the damage that I'm seeing around is similar to what I saw before. Um, although some residents say they feel like this time it was even worse. I think what was really striking is that a lot of residents are sort of reeling from the fact that they just fixed their homes um, from when the last tornado hit. And that was also uh, on the heels of Hurricane Ida that a lot of people also experienced damage during that storm. It feels like, um, you know, disaster after disaster for a lot of people in this neighborhood. But what was very striking to me was that almost every single person that I spoke to didn't say that this was you know, um, the straw that was breaking the camel's back for them. It's they want to rebuild. They want to stay here. They love being in Araby. They love being in Louisiana. Um, and so they're just going to pick up the pieces, and they're going to stay here and be resilient. Um, it was great even to speak to one, one person here who took out his own personal tractor that he had in his home um, because he had been prepared for events like this and, you know, was outside in good spirit, surprisingly, helping his neighbors pick up the debris around their houses. Um, and he was just ready to, to get to work and to get everything fixed up. Thank you. Thank you all for your time. We'll be keeping up with this on the websites, WWNO and WRKF. You heard from Patrick Madden and also from Polina Chadlani. Again, the websites, WWNO.org and WRKF.org for updates as the storm is uncovered. Thank you, folks. Healthcare workforce challenges have grown in recent years. Ashner has identified workforce development and education as one of the major priorities for the Healthy State by 2030 initiative. Ashner representatives join us now to discuss these programs. This is Christina McKnight, Manager, Talent Development, or Talent Management and Workforce Development, and Sylvia Hartman, Director of Nursing and Academic Relations. Sylvia. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came into this this wonderful program. Sure. I am a registered nurse. I've been working for Ochsner for over 30 years now. Uh, and in this role of Director of Nursing Academic Relations, I am responsible for uh, developing partnerships, working with the nursing schools um, to address uh, student uh, pipeline. Um, and some of the uh, openings that we have in our healthcare system, a state and country. Um, so uh, work with the schools on increasing enrollment, uh, student placement in our facilities, our hospitals, clinics, uh, and uh, expect to uh, help them be successful in, in their schooling so that they can come out and be practice ready to work at our organization. And Christina, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I started working for um, Auctioner back in 2018. Haven't been here quite as long as Sylvia, 
But my primary function inside of, I should say, my team's primary function inside of workforce development is truly um, bridging the gap. We work heavily with the department leaders to understand exactly what the needs are as it relates to the um, different service lines. So my team partners um, with colleges and high schools and additional partners to create customized training and apprenticeship style programs to fill those needs for the particular uh, service lines. So I'm assuming that uh, just being the man on the street and thinking about what's been going on recently, needs were possibly existed before. We always want new people coming into the field. The pandemic upset that a little bit and how that worked. And not only did it upset the number of people coming in, it elevated the number of people leaving. Sylvia, I'll, I'll open that to you. Yeah, I mean, as, as far as I can remember, um, we've always had a shortage of nurses, but certainly the uh, pandemic has heightened and made it even more critical. Um, we did see uh, nurses leaving the bedside. Um, but, you know, by the same token, we still have significant interest in the community with people wanting to go into he health care. Um, so, so we're trying to support that need. Um, even prior to the pandemic, within the nursing schools, we were turning away qualified applicants. Um, so we're, we're trying to not only address that, but um, uh, increase enrollment um, uh, in addition to uh, addressing those that were being turned away, qualified applicants. So we want to we want to we take as many of those students that are qualified uh, into our nursing programs here in the state. And so we're working with the schools to address what what that might look like. Additional faculty placement locations at our at our hospitals and ambulatory sites. Uh, and then, you know, Christina can can. Um, can articulate what what she's doing to get to these students sooner than later, um, you know, in in high school. Uh, anyone that that uh, expresses interest in healthcare. Yes, we have found that there are a lot of people that truly have that desire to um, to want to come into our organization to um, to be at the bedside and become uh, registered nurses and um, and practical nurses. So we kind of, we work from the inside and also out. So internally, we work to um, build up our current um, staff. So to give them a particular career pathway trajectory to move into. So I know I said I talked about a partnership with our um, local community technical colleges. So we have created apprenticeship style programs where they can actually go to school and earn a living wage as they progress from whichever field that they start out at to become practical nurses and registered nurses. And we also wanna make sure that we're starting early. So as Sylvia uh, spoke about getting into the high schools. So we have uh, several partnerships currently with uh, the New Orleans Career Center and some additional high schools where we go in, we speak to the students, and we find out the ones that truly have that desire to move into nursing. So we put them on that um, on that pathway. So they take dual enrollment classes with, uh, for instance, for Delgado. So as they're going through um, their high school program, they're taking those classes. They're able to actually come on our site to be immersed, um, to get some on-the-job training, to truly see what it's like. 
Um, and at the end of the program, they actually um, maneuver into our apprenticeship style program that I just spoke about that we have for our um, incumbents. So we're trying to fill the need as expeditiously and efficiently as possible. Sylvia, you had mentioned national, international, I think at the beginning, that this is not, is this, it's obviously not just a local issue. Did you draw from any models anywhere else in finding your way to this? Or were there people that you discussed the idea with along the way at all? Well, it, it definitely is a, um, a national a national problem um, in terms of, um, you know, the shortage um, whether we drew from other programs, I, I know that um, nationally we are turning away students and there are partnerships um, like, like the ones that we are forging with hospitals or health systems and universities and high schools um, mm -hmm. to support one another, whether it's, you know, just a, a clinical um, affiliation agreement or a strategic partnership. Um, and or financial like we're doing. So we have, you know, all types of agreements. I think we've seen this. Um, I mean, I know I've seen it with the nursing. Um, I don't know if Christina can speak to the workforce development piece, but we have seen health systems partner with, with um, universities to help with student enrollment. Um, uh, you know, in terms of the financial um, the financial investments that we're making, I can't speak to, you know, like, um, whether whether those exist in, in other states, but um, but traditionally you've seen we've seen um, a, agreements between partnerships and agreements between um, health systems, academic health systems, and um, universities and and community colleges. Christina, I'm one of the unlucky students that didn't hear about this at all. I wasn't in the right classroom at the right time. If I'm getting an interest in this, how do I reach out and find out more? So um, any individual that actually wants to learn more about our particular um, programs, because we do have a uh, pretty significant amount, they can certainly um, reach out to us at workforce at auctioner.org. Um, and I have senior consultants in um, many regions um, because our programs do expand out. And they can reach out to us and we can provide direct uh, information. And in addition, we do have um, auctioner.org slash careers. So um, either way. And Sylvia, further information on your part of the program. I, I mean, and I say the program and it's not the, it is multiple programs working together as an interface, which is remarkable and wonderful. Yeah, I think any one of those links will get them to the programs that we offer, not just the workforce programs, but some of the funding that we provide, our scholars program, to help with um, tuition um, expenses. We're, we're, we have a program um, as well, uh, different programs actually to support um, potential students uh, financially, because you know we're trying to make sure that they're successful, and we're looking at the whole the whole um, picture here. And we know that sometimes, you know, the financial aspects is a deterrent for, for some. And we're, you know, trying to address getting people from all populations as well to diversify the workforce. Um, so we want to help all of our communities and diversify our workforce as well. So if they look, if they go to our website, they will be able to see um, quite a few of um, or all uh, information on all of our programs. Thank you all. 
Thank you. Thank you. Auctioner representatives Christina McKnight, Talent Management and Workforce Development Manager, and Sylvia Hartman, Director of Nursing Academic Relations. You are listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lengel. Every picture tells a story, and there are a few that accompany our closing piece today. You'll have to follow up on the website or in a podcast. We're visiting Aluthia today. Tuesday, December 13th, is National Violin Day. Our Luthier, essentially a caretaker of fine acoustic instruments, will tell us a little bit about keeping these instruments in condition that helps the player keep the instrument sounding its best. Oh, hello, John. Hi, Carl. Welcome to Keller Strings. Keller Strings in New Orleans is one of a few shops across Louisiana that cater to the stringed instrument and its player. There are quite a few locations that might offer strings, maybe a rosin cake for the bow, but the luthier can actually disassemble and restore the wood instrument, even the floaters from Hurricane Katrina. But we'll get to that in a minute. We sat down at John's work table and chatted a little about his craft. Who comes to you and what, what do they bring to you? The acoustic violins, violas, cellos, or upright basses. Professionals, we have advanced players, we have beginners, and they come with varying degrees of needs. Often with uh, entertainers, with professionals, it's an emergency, and we throw everything to the side and try to take care of whatever the issue is for them. What kinds of problems pop up when they come in? What do they look like sometimes? We have had problems from someone having a random extra noise like a buzz or a rattle in the instrument and sometimes it's difficult to track it down but we will find it and we will repair it sometimes we have someone come in with a box that sounds like it's full of bones and every piece has been unglued from every other piece of the instrument now you're telling me it's just a pile of wood shards um, it's the pieces. I do have a base in the shop that literally was run over by a semi uh, recently and uh, total destruction. I'd never seen anything that looked like that. I have restored several violins that we call Katrina floaters and they were actually instruments, violins mostly, that floated in the flood People went through their houses and picked up all the pieces, put them in a box, brought it to us, and it usually takes about a year to restore one of those, but it has been done. Let's talk a little bit about this particular violin. We'll just take this one off of the shelf. When this came in, what did it look like? It looked really nice. It was a little dirty, the normal contamination. 
It was interesting. It was an old Roth violin made in Germany. The label in it said 1929, and it was signed by the maker, Heinrich Roth. And uh, I, I like the older Roths a lot, and I always enjoy working on them. I saw that it had a poorly repaired top crack and a new crack in the top. So I wanted to remove the spruce top on it so I could unglue the poorly repaired crack and, and re-repair it. When I got the top off, I discovered that the bottom block that's built inside the instrument was cracked. And I realized and told the owner that I was going to need to replace that block. Now, is that a complicated process? You're, now you're dealing with the inside of the instrument. A crack on the outside, I understand, might be easily repairable compared to dealing with something like that. Do you? What's the process for putting that new block in? First, I remove the old block. I usually glue the pieces back together just so I will have all those parts. There's a lot of cleaning involved. There's a lot of old violin glue and contamination around the site. Then I carve a new block out of spruce to fit in the bottom of the instrument. It's important because everything at the bottom of the violin, the button that holds the tailpiece, that holds the strings, where the ribs come together at the bottom are all glued to this block of wood. So it's critical that it's correct and not broken. Given the odds, how long will this instrument last now? It can last hundreds of years. There's, there's, it's a very nice, very well-built instrument. I believe on close examination that that bottom block cracked while the instrument was being made. And another thing I discovered, I noticed that the label in it that said 1929 had lifted a little bit, so I gently pulled up on it, and underneath it was another Roth label dated 1923. Now, is that unusual? I've never seen that before. I've seen labels over labels, but usually it's just to misrepresent an instrument as something that it's not. But in this case, my gut tells me that the bottom block cracked when they built the instrument. They already had the label in it. I believe they hung it up and it stayed in the shop for several years. Then someone decided to relabel it and send it on out. It's fascinating when you think that what you just told us about this one violin is potentially true of every musical instrument you deal with. There's a remarkable story behind them. I love getting into old instruments. I don't build new instruments. I've never been interested in that, but I get lost in old instruments. There's, there, there's so much history in them, and they tell a story. One Violin Story with Luthier John Keller and violinist Kevin Ma. Again, you can follow up on the web and podcasts to see some of the violin repair details that we described in this story. 
This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. Thanks to our guests today, auctioner talent management and workforce development manager Christina McKnight and director of nursing academic relations Sylvia Hartman. Also to Luthier John Keller, violinist Kevin Ma and the staff at Keller Strings and our Metro reporter Carly Berlin, who we didn't hear from, but also Gulf State Newsroom's Shalina Chotlani, who we did hear from. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Digital editor is Caitlin Dumholz. Engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. Listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30, also wherever you get your podcasts. Support comes from Rouse's Market, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.